Well, this morning's text uh, comes to a major shift. It's both the conclusion of the beginning and the introduction to the end. Uh, to the next part that we're, we're going to see here. Our, our text is verses 11 and 12. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's very apparent from from, uh, Peter's teaching here that, that he's drawing from his own teacher's teaching. Jesus said something very similar in the Sermon on the Mount, and Peter would have been there to hear it. He said in Matthew 5, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So our text in in Peter this morning has remarkable similarities to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. And so as we consider our text, I have two questions I want us to think about. And the first is this. What does the world think about us, or perhaps you, as Christians? So we can ask this question about us as a congregation. What does the world, what do the the people in our our neighborhood, in our city, and and those around us, what do they think about Living Water Church? But also for us individually, consider the same question as it applies to you. What would your neighbors say about you? Your neighbors being not just your friends, but, but perhaps people like your boss, your barista, your barber, anyone else it might include. How do the people who know you, who interact you, but perhaps not even are closest to you, do they notice anything about you that is distinct compared to the rest of the world? And if so, would they say that thing that's distinct about you is good or bad? This is the first question I want us to consider, which raises the second question. The second question is this. Should we even care about what the world thinks about us? After all, Jesus told us that we will be hated by all for his name's sake, Luke 21, 17. And moreover, we see throughout the scriptures that, that we aren't even to be judged by the world. God is our judge. He is the one who will disclose the purposes of the heart. So, so why should we care about what the world thinks of us? Do we even entertain the first question? I believe we should. And I think our text this morning gives us grounds for that question. Look again at 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So there's a negative command to abstain from the passions of the flesh. There's a positive command here that our conduct would be honorable among the Gentiles. And here's the purpose of that. So that... When they, that's the Gentiles, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So 
Should we even care about what the world thinks about us? My answer from this text is absolutely. Because, one, outsiders, when they see us, the, the, their view of us as they see our good works has a huge impact on our ability to effect, effectively evangelize to them. Let me explain two things from this text. First, who are the Gentiles? And second, what does it mean for them to glorify God on the day of visitation? Let's consider these two, and as I explain what I think these mean to you this morning, it's your job to test what I say to see that I'm rightly handling the word. And so first, let's consider who the Gentiles are. We know that the Gentiles were those who are not ethnic Jews. That's who the Gentiles are. Most of us here are Gentiles in that sense, but I don't think that's what Peter's concerned about here. I don't think he's concerned primarily with the ethnicity of those who would otherwise be looking in on the church he has just called us, the church, a royal, uh, a chosen race, excuse me, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those are all these special titles that applied to the Jewish nation. And yet he applies them here to the Christians who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. They're applied to us. We are a chosen race, not because of any kind of family line that we have, but we are children of Abraham because we have been born again. We are true Israelites because we have faith in Jesus Christ. And so it seems that here in our text, Peter applies the imagery of, of the nations here further, that we are this, this chosen nation and that the other nations, the Gentiles, are referring to not ethnicity, but those who are non-believers, those who are not counted among the people of God. So let's consider now what it means then for these Gentiles, these non-believers to glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation refers to the time when God would come and visit men on earth. We see it used only one other time in the New Testament in Luke 19.44. You can look it up, but it's referring to Jesus Christ's incarnation that he came and he dwelt among us. And it's called his visitation there in, in Luke. But in the Old Testament, it's used a number of times to refer to both God's blessing his people and his judgment against the wicked. So the, re the reference here to his visitation, likely what Peter probably has in mind is Jesus' second coming, that he's going to return. And when he comes, he will judge the living and the dead as we confess every week in the Apostles' Creed. But the fact that these Gentiles here are said to glorify God on the day of his visitation likely means that, that these non-believers come to faith in Jesus Christ, causing them to glorify him when he returns. And so our good works are, are important. that They play this vital role in our evangelism because when they see our good works, it adorns the gospel that we proclaim. And the ultimate reason that this would matter to us this morning is because our work as evangelists, our work as those who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, our works as evangelists bring God glory. When the lost come to faith, when God brings them from death to life, God is glorified and this is our chief end that we would glorify god 
and enjoy him forever. And this is also the chief end of Christ. You see it throughout the Gospels. His aim is that the Father would be glorified and that he would be glorified through the Father. And so our enjoyment of God causes us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. But furthermore, when that's done and when that's seen by those who do not believe in God, it causes them to begin to wonder what is with these people? What is the reason for the hope that they have? And it brings lost sheep into the fold of Christ. And so we should care what others think about us. Before we get too far along into the text, let us see where this fits into 1 Peter. Most commentators agree that Peter here is launching the body of this letter. He's concluding what he has set up up until this point, but now he's, he's getting to his primary concern, which is how we as Christians live in exile amongst those who are not believers, those who are opposed to the gospel, those who would hate Christ and hate us because of Christ. Chapter 1 was primarily concerned with the gospel truths which lead to the gospel behaviors that, that shape how we relate to one another and relate to God. But here in chapter two, he rehearses again our identity in Christ with new language, where this new temple, this new priesthood, this new people, as Tate taught us last week from 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But here's the purpose that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Tate taught us that it seems that his primary concern is evangelistic in that proclamation. And so we have this privileged identity with a special purpose, and this lays the path for where Peter is going from there in our text and the text that follows. Our text today is, about people seeing the conduct that abstains negatively and positively is adorned with respectful conduct. And what we're going to see in the weeks to come is the way we conduct ourselves in the specific circumstances, how we conduct ourselves towards governing authorities, cruel masters, unbelieving spouses. And then he lays the motive for such living, and then he's going to give us the model, for that, which is Christ, for, for us to imitate as we live in exile. And today's text lays the groundwork for what, what is to come. And so let's hear the text again and consider what it means, what he's after here as he calls us to, to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to conduct ourselves among the Gentiles with honor. Verse 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I want us to focus first on verse 12. Now keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so if it's important what the world thinks of us, if we should have any concern about it, then we ought to strive to be seen for Christ. It's the first thing I want us to consider this morning. We should strive to be seen for Christ. You see, there's a temptation that we face as exiles in the world. When people hurl insults at us, and even perhaps if it escalates beyond just insults and, and slander, but, but furthermore into suffering physically, the, the, the temptation is that we would conceal ourselves from the world in order to avoid persecution. It's evident from throughout this letter that persecution is on the forefront of Peter's mind. 
And it certainly is in this text as well. In fact, even in just a chapter from now, Peter's going to bring it up very similarly to what we see in our text this morning, but he's going to show us that it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be safe. 1 Peter 3, 13 and following, he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And anyone who knows the, the scriptures well, suffering for righteousness sake that receives this blessing should remind us of Jesus's teaching again on the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5 10 through 12 he taught blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So understand this, living as God's people, living as exiles in the world will bring about suffering, persecution, because the rest of the world looks at us as strange and moreover as one that is repulsive and to be hated. And none of us want to suffer. Most of us work really hard to avoid suffering. That's why when we get a headache, we are quick to take Tylenol or some kind of medicine to, to curb the headache. We do what we can to avoid suffering as best as possible. We do the same thing as exiles. We might try to uh, avoid suffering by remaining hidden from the world. In the face of persecution, we might be tempted to withdraw from those who hate Christ and his church. And this is certainly true of us, all the more so, especially in the day and age that we're living in and in the place of the country that we're living in. As we look around us and we see the wickedness in our world and in our city and in the surrounding area, we may be tempted to put every effort into preserving our life or at the very least our way of life. We might want to hide in our homes and we might even pick up our home altogether and move. But hiding ourselves from the world neglects the purpose to which we have been saved. And Jesus draws us out even as he taught on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And the light here that he's referring to is all the, the strange characteristics that he has outlined right before this in the Beatitudes. Let your light shine before others so that when they see your good works, they would give glory to the Father who is in heaven. You see, just as a lamp has the purpose to bring light into a house, so too, as we saw last week, the privileged, privileged position that we share as God's people that are chosen by him. Is not merely for our salvation, but the purpose of our salvation is so that we would proclaim him. And the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so Peter says to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, when I talk about being seen by others, it's also worthwhile to, to put up a, a red flag, a warning about being seen by others. You see, the danger I have in mind here is not persecution. 
But the danger is what Jesus outlines further in the Sermon on the Mount. Look again at Matthew 5, 16 and pay careful attention to the purpose for why he calls us to let our light shine. He says, let your light shine before others. Why? So that you, so that, excuse me, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the purpose is that they wouldn't just see us, but they would see past us and give glory to God who has changed us as Peter has said, who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So where's the warning? Well, Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 6, here in the same teaching. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others. And here's the purpose, in order to be seen by them. Then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so what's the difference between Matthew 5, 16 and Matthew 6, 1? The difference is the intent of the heart. The purpose for which we are letting our light shine, so to speak. One does it so that people would see past us and give glory to God, who is worthy of all praise. And in Matthew 6, the purpose of the heart and letting their righteousness be seen isn't because they are righteous at all, but really they want people to see them. They want the glory. They want the praise of men. The former is the work of true faith, and the latter is the work of the hypocrite that is clean on the outside, but on the inside is full of all kinds of sinful motives. So beware of this danger. And yet let us not let this danger hinder us from letting our good works be seen. Brothers and sisters, let us not hide ourselves from the world. Don't do good works in order to receive praise from man, but at the same time, just don't do your good works being being hidden, but instead let your light shine so that others can see your good works and glorify God. And the people would even point out, wow, you're a stand-up person. You're, You're really good. Just take the extra effort and say, the only reason I am what I am is because of the grace of God. And he deserves all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. And so whenever praise is directed to us, we should be ones who would redirect the praise up to God. Because it all belongs to him. So brothers and sisters, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But with this comes another temptation that we face in our day. Here's the temptation that Christians face that we probably face almost every single day. Due to being in the world and being seen by the world, we face the pressure of conforming to the patterns of the world in order to be accepted by the world. And we want others to like us. We, of course, like I said earlier, don't want to suffer. But if they like us, it will give us a better opportunity for sharing the gospel we might rationalize with ourselves. But there are certain aspects of our faith Certain parts of our message that the world won't like. For example, the supremacy of Christ above all things. That's not a very popular message in the world that is centered on self. There are other aspects of the faith that the world won't like, like talking about sin. Or like talking about God's wrath against sin and the eternal consequence of hell because of sin. So often churches distort the truth in order to make Christianity cool. And even us as individuals might even make our lives indistinguishable from the rest of the world so that we might fit in. The temptation is this, that we would conform ourselves to the world so that we would be more palatable to the world. That way we would not be hated or slandered or persecuted. But pretty soon what you have is a bunch of so-called Christians living in the world, 
but there is nothing distinct about them from the world. So let that not be said of us, but instead let us strive to be separate for Christ, to be holy for Christ, to be different from the rest of the world for the sake of Christ and his gospel. We've already talked about the, the haste that we take and running away from the danger of persecution, but, but Peter in this text sets before us the true danger. The true danger is not slander. The true danger is not being put to death, but the danger is there in verse 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's the danger here. If we're gonna abstain and remove ourselves from anything, it's not to remove ourselves from the world, but to remove ourselves from the passions of the flesh that seek to kill us, that wages war against the soul. And the soul here is not merely the immaterial part of a person, but the soul is the very life of God that is breathed into us, that gives this material body life. I picture here the battle of Helm's Deep. The passions of your flesh are like a strong army that marches out against you and lays siege against you so that it might kill you. Oh, we're quick to run from danger in this life, from the danger of persecution or even perhaps the danger of, I don't know, strangers. But we are running away from the wrong thing. Calvin summed it up well. He said this, he said, Peter proves our carelessness in this respect, that while we anxiously shun enemies from whom we apprehend danger to the body, we willingly allow enemies hurtful to the soul to destroy us. Nay, we, as it were, stretch forth our neck to them. Calvin's right on. We willingly allow enemies to hurt the soul and destroy us when we entertain a little bit of gossip, when we stoke the flame of hatred for others, when we look at a woman with lust, when we covet the things that we cannot have, when we love the things of the world more than we love Christ, such sins are so sweet to the flesh. That's why Peter calls them the passions of the flesh. This word passions, it simply means the desires of the flesh. It's what the, the flesh longs for. And we as Christians still face these temptations, these longings for, for this sweet, sweet sin. You see, sin, it tastes sweet to the flesh, but make no mistake about it, sin is a poison to your soul. It is the danger that we are to abstain from, to run from, to, to wage war against. You see, the, the passions of the flesh, they are active in waging war, and so we ought to just as well be active in fighting against sin. Yes, for the sake of our soul, but also, as we see here, for the sake of the glory of God, so people would see our good works and give glory to God. And so I want to give us just a, a brief run-through of a strategy that I love from one of my favorite pastors, John Piper. He has an acronym, APTAT. And it's a terrible acronym because APTAT's not a word, and yet it's wonderful because it shows us a means by which we can engage in the war against our sin. Not as people who are just striving, but people who need help. And so the first is this. We admit that we can do nothing without God. As John 15 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And so in our fight against sin, as we wage war and abstain from the passions of the flesh, whenever temptation comes our way, the first thing that we should do is say, God, I can't do this apart from you. And then after that, we go to him and pray for help. The way Jesus even taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's what he means by pray for help. Ask the Lord for help. And then trust in a specific promise. He has given us all kinds of promises in his word. That promises that he will, in fact, help us in our time of need. Take, for example, James 4 with the context that we're looking at with waging war against sin and abstaining from the passions of the flesh. James 4, 7, and 8, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So trust the specific promise. Go to God's word and cling to a promise knowing that what you're praying for is given to us by God in his word. Then act the miracle. The funny thing is this is where most of us start in our spiritual battles. We try to simply get up act it and do it, pull ourselves together and make it happen with sheer willpower. Reminds me of the sons of Sceva who tried to cast out demons and all the while they're doing it in their own strength, these itinerant exorcists. But we have no power apart from God. And yet here, make no mistake about it all the same, when we admit that we can't do it, when we pray for help and we trust the promise and we take these acts of faith God, he then calls us to act, to participate with him in the very work that he is doing in us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working and we are working with him, him in us and us with him. And so when Peter here tells us to abstain from the passions of the flesh, he's not trying to trick us here. He's calling us to participate in the very act of of running and fleeing from sin. And then finally, thank God for his provision and goodness because any good that we do is really because of him. And so we give him thanks. So in your fight against the passions of the flesh, admit your helplessness, pray for help, trust the specific promise, act the miracle, and thank God for his help. If you want to learn more about that, of course, you can just type in aptat and you'll be bound to find more help from, from Piper on this point. But but as we live in the world, as we're seen in the world, let us ensure that we do not conform ourselves to the pattern of the world. Because if we do, we will lose our distinctiveness from the world and with it our use, usefulness to the world. And with it, God will not be glorified. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If we are not salty and distinct from the world, if there is no otherness about us, then we quickly lose the ground to proclaim the gospel that we are called to proclaim. How can we warn people of the dangers of sin? If we ourselves do not take such warnings seriously but entertain all kinds of sins, how can we call people to, to look to Christ who is far more precious than even life itself if he is not even our own greatest treasure because of our own love for lesser things in the world? Brothers and sisters, let us not conform ourselves 
to the pattern of the world and let us not conceal ourselves from the world, but rather let us be salt that is tasted. Let us be light that is seen so that people might taste and see that the Lord is good. But now there's one more temptation that I'd like us to consider this morning. We can be seen by the world and we can be separate from the world. And if these two are properly applied, they would certainly be sufficient. But we make the error of thinking that this means that we are to be hostile to the world, being seen and being separate. Being salt of the earth, understand, does not mean that you are salty in the sense that people think you're cranky, ornery, and hostile. It's not at all what Peter has in mind. Listen again to him in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, the good works that we are to perform, they're approved by God, yes, but evidently here, even the unbeliever who would otherwise accuse you of evil will see your good deeds and recognize there is something about it that is, in fact, good. So finally, I want us to strive to be savored for Christ. Strive to be savored, that is to be enjoyed, to be something that is, that is flavorful, that adds, that adds something good and enjoyable to the rest of the world that is otherwise so terrible and wicked, and even the world itself seems to want to run away from itself. Listen to how we relate to the world. Jesus taught us, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those abuse, who abuse you. There is nothing at least salty in the negative sense about those words. What about correcting your enemies? Don't they need to be corrected? Well, they certainly do. We don't change the message. We don't refrain from the truth. And yet, Second Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. But what about dealing with that which is truly evil? Again, you can see from a number of scriptures, but I'll just use Paul in Romans 12. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Understand the saltiness of the Christian life is not to be negative to the world, at least not necessarily, although there might be some who would still persecute you because of it. But being the salt of the earth means we bring flavor that is enjoyed and savored, the way a little bit of salt on popcorn brings out all the flavors that are otherwise bland and boring, the way a little bit of butter on an otherwise bland, dry piece of toast turns it into something that is delicious. So too, we are to add a flavor, an aroma, if you will, of Christ, such that even the world would see God through us and give him glory. Consider the words of Micah 6, 8. Consider how the world would view these things. 
Has he told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, if the world found in us people who did these things, who, who did justice, loved kindness, not just did kindness, but they loved kindness, and they were humble as they walked with God, I wonder who in the world could possibly object to such a person. Consider again, ever so briefly, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Could any person in the world accuse you of evil if you were marked by such good fruit? I don't think it's an overestimate to say that the world finds most of the Christian ethic, not all of it, but most of the Christian ethic agreeable when it is carried out. That is even why unbelievers are so quick to at least receive Jesus as a moral teacher. They certainly miss the point of who he is. They certainly stumble over the fact that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They certainly miss out that he is the Son of God. The Christian ethic is largely attractive even to those who would otherwise hate Christ. But make no mistake about it, Peter's not saying here that in doing this and letting your good works be seen and being honorable to those who are, are in the world, he's not at all saying that we will not be hated. Peter even acknowledges it here in this text when he says that they will speak against you as evildoers in verse 12. They will do so. They will slander you, Christian. They will accuse you of, of wrongdoing. After all, even Christ was accused of working by the power of demons. And if they would say so of the master, we should not expect anything less. But when the world accuses you of evil, the words ought to be nothing more than slander. There should be no ground for what they would otherwise accuse you of. That's what Peter's calling us to. Yes, we're sinners. It's not the point. We're not perfect. That's not what Peter's trying to get at. But he's saying the conduct with which we live is to be so good, even by outsider standards, that they would look at it and say, it's true. The accusations are false. This person is, is good, even on our own standards. And we see this throughout Scripture. Remember even when Paul was on trial before the king and the governor, what they said to one another was this. They said that this man, a Paul, they said this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. His accuser certainly brought up many accusations, but when it was actually looked at in his works and his deeds, he was found blameless. And of course, if we knew this of Paul, it would certainly bring to, to memory the one to whom Paul imitates. When Jesus himself was on trial, before Pilate, Pilate said of him, I find no guilt in this man. And yet they crucified him nonetheless. So it will be of us just as well. We would be hated. Make no mistake of it. You will be slandered. You can be sure of it. But may it stop there with slander. May we flee from sin that wages war against our flesh and may we do what is honorable in the sight of all so that when they see our good conduct, they would ultimately see that this is a person who has been transformed by the grace of God and then give him glory. 
You see, the, the message of the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. If the, if, if the truth of the gospel offends people, well, so be it. But let the truth be said in love. Christ is an offense. But Christ's messengers should strive to be honorable. As we saw again in 2 Timothy 2.25, correcting their opponents with gentleness so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So what is this all for? It's important that we get this right or else the rest of it becomes all kinds of a mess. If we all of a sudden forget what this is for, what we do is just say, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. And that's not what Peter's charge is. The charge is that people would see us and glorify God because of the good works that they see in us. We are to adorn the good news that we preach with good works because the message that we preach is just that, that God has saved us, that he has transformed us, that he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the excellency that we proclaim. You might not realize it, but you're a preacher. Maybe not on a pulpit like this, but certainly a preacher to the world. And so let me, let me tell you something about a book that, that Tate and I read recently on preaching. Uh, it gives all these wonderful tips on, on, on sermon preparation and the process and delivery and making it point to Christ and all these things. But before he gives any tips and tricks, one of the things he talks about is the ethos of the preacher. That is the character of the preacher. And we know this all by experience, don't we? That it doesn't matter how true the words are when it comes from a person whose conduct is terrible. Even we would have a hard time hearing it. And so in this book, he lays out for the preacher the importance of having character. Not just saying things that are compelling, not just saying things that are true, not just being able to turn a phrase or whatever else it might be, but, but being the very incarnate embodiment of Christ that's transformed by the gospel that we proclaim. This is what we preach, that he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, the world can spot a hypocrite from a mile away. I can pick up my lunchbox and without even opening it, I can immediately tell whether there's lunch in it or not because of the weight or the lack thereof. So too, people can make a quick and often even accurate judgment about the sincerity of your life. In fact, it's often, at least in my experience, the chief criticism I hear from non-believers about the church and Christianity that the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites calling people to do what they otherwise don't even practice themselves. And I would like for this to be nothing more than slander. And so often it is. And yet, unfortunately, there are times where this is all too true. But what Peter's calling us to here is far more than a show of self. And it's far more than an external show for others. The external behavior that he's calling us to is owing to the internal transformation of the person who has been brought out of darkness into marvelous light. 
And so if you think what he's telling you to do is just show up in front of people and impress them, make no mistake of it, verse 12 follows verse 11. We ought to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and we are in this time and place in exile for a purpose, that we would proclaim the excellencies of him. And so our Lord prayed for us to this end. John 17, 14 and following, he said, praying to the Father of his disciples, he said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world and ask for their sake and as for their sake, excuse me, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. What a marvelous thing that our Lord has prayed for us to this end, that we would be sanctified, holy, set apart. And then he died as well for our sanctification. And so let us receive the benefits of the gospel. Let us go to him and ask him for help. Let him let us ask him to glorify himself through us. And then in that, let us act the miracle. Let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and glorify God. Let me pray to this end. Father, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you that you have forgiven us of our sins and you have made us new creatures, no longer living for the passions of the flesh, but now instead hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so to that end, Lord, would you fill us up with Christ? Would you transform us to be more like Christ? And in these things, would you glorify the name of Christ through us? Lord, be honored in our life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.